Welcome to We Could All Use Some Therapy, the podcast hosted by two friends who also happen to be therapists. With over 30 years of combined experience, we'll discuss why people go to therapy, why they don't, and the systems they navigate. While our podcast is about therapy, it is in fact not your therapy. No information in this podcast should be considered a substitute for treatment. Please seek out a professional mental health provider for your own support. Hey everyone, this is Jill. Thanks for tuning in. We have a really great episode with two therapists who have a lot of really important things to say about culturally responsive therapy. The sound gets a little glitchy at one point, but stick with it. They say some really important things. We also want to say that we're going to be taking a little bit of a break. We've got some new ideas. We want to put some new things together for everybody. So we're going to be taking a little bit of time off, but we will hopefully be able to meet you back in the summer with some new stuff. So enjoy this episode. Hi, Jill. Hey, Isabel. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We have other people on the Zoom. We do have other people. So we're going to introduce our guests in a minute. Um, so I'm Isabel. I am a licensed clinical social worker in New York. Today's exciting. We have two guests with us. We're very excited for our second interview. Jill is going to introduce them in a second. It's been our voices for many, many episodes, and we are excited to have different voices in the space. So first, we have two of my friends, my one a uh, current coworker, one a former coworker, two very, very smart people who I've been very excited to have on. So we have uh, Dr. Nicole Taylor, who is a doctorate of marriage and family therapy and a somatic therapist. And we have Dr. Stacia Veal, who is also a doctor of marriage and family therapy, specializing in culturally responsive psychotherapy. I said the word doctor a lot. <laughs> We are very excited to have them on. They um, are absolute rock stars when it comes to the accomplishments. They worked full-time as they got their PhDs. Nikki was building an amazing um, business. Stacia was building a person inside of her at the time. And it is nothing short of shocking how they were able to work full-time go through their doctoral program and um, I barely can get up in the morning. So yes, I'm very excited to have these people on. So if we want to start with Nikki, if you could tell us a little bit about your work. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me. It is an honor to be on this, uh, this podcast with you. Um, so yeah, my work as a somatic therapist includes a lot of different types of modalities. I'm a somatic psychotherapist. I'm also a somatic and mindfulness guide. Um, I lead yoga both in a class structure and an individual. So a lot of my work is really focusing on how can we identify our mental and emotional um, dysregulations, distresses, and how we can use our body to help like resolve those issues at their core and work through them in a very intuitive and self-compassionate way. My doctorate specifically focused on decolonizing psychotherapy. And that's really looking at how we can try and integrate more um, contemporary approaches, more 
integrative approaches into just the talk therapy model in the hopes and with the goal of increasing access for specific groups that generally don't have don't have the most access to mental health services. Um, so looking at people of color, people with disabilities, people um, who have economic disadvantages, um, queer and sexual minorities, and really trying to increase their access to these services by getting more of these integrative and whole person approaches in to primary care settings. So like when you go to your doctor and you're looking for mental health support or in the traditional mental health clinics and less so in the private practice um, aspects. And then additionally, I also run a private practice where mm -hmm. a lot of my focus is not just working with these specific groups, but helping to train and guide other clinicians in the field to have this specific lens of working with generally overlooked communities. Thank you so much. Can you just, for those who don't know, um, describe what a somatic therapist is and what exactly that means? Yeah, the practice of somatics in any aspect is really just taking a body-based approach. And so when we're talking about therapies in general, we're talking about different interventions and methods that help to improve a, per improve a person's well-being. And so through somatic therapy, we are looking at how emotions come up in our body, how they're stored in our body, how we can use body awareness and body movement to help not only self-regulate, which is like often most present when an emotion is activated, but also as a way to understand what's at the core root of how we're experiencing our mental and emotional issues. Thank you. Of course. Dr. Dr. Stacia, you want to go? Can you tell us all about your amazing work? Absolutely. Um, so similar to what you were saying earlier about um, my specialty is around culturally responsive work. It's really doing systemic kind of psychotherapy with populations of color, with marginalized populations. with, And it really focuses on the emphasis around cultural and individual differences, really using a strength-based approach. How do you integrate their individual differences in order to enhance their therapy and create a kind of like a therapeutic environment that's more accessible and more feeling more safe for our marginalized populations? So our show, the you know, our show focuses on a lot of different aspects of therapy, but one thing we talk a lot about is how can more people access therapy and why do some people have problems accessing therapy and is therapy really accessible um, to everybody? And so, um, you know, the name of our show is We Could All Use Some Therapy. And so, Stacia, I'll just ask you first um, in terms of your field of interest, um, and you talked a little bit about it before, but like, how does it really relate to increasing access to therapy? And what, what have you found in, you know, whether it's working or throughout your doctoral program about um, access to therapy? So in the population that I focus on when it comes to our black and brown populations, our populations of color, 
my focus is on creating a safety when it comes to the therapeutic space that wasn't always there for our black and brown populations. And so focusing on integrating their culture, focusing on highlighting systems of oppression. When you're having that kind of focus, you're increasing access because you're decreasing this kind of stigma that the population already has around therapy and at the same time working with those populations around kind of racialized outcomes that that occur within the population. And so really access is an element of culturally responsive therapy um, kind of underneath this um, this umbrella of um, of cultural responses, therapeutic models, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. Thank you. So same question for you, Nikki, Mm -hmm. in terms of access to therapy, what have you learned in your work and your studies about um, how different groups access therapy? Yeah, very similar to what Stacia was focusing on. Um, My research and a lot of the projects that I was working on in my program and currently are working on is focused on black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. What I have found is in increasing access to these services, we have to first understand what is preventing the access. And it comes not only you know systemically, well, it starts systemically, but it's very layered in like what these barriers are. There are barriers that are economic. There mm-hmm. are barriers related to stigma. There are um, historical barriers based on just the historical treatment of Black and Brown people, more specifically when you're looking at treatment in medical and care settings. And so being able to understand first, like, why these disparities exist, and then trying to figure out what can be done about it. Um, And what I found in my particular area of research that I can work towards doing is trying to increase comfort and trust in the psychotherapy systems. Mm -hmm. And that's where this idea of decolonizing psychotherapy comes from, is how can we take um, the psychotherapy practice and decolonize it, take away all of these systemic oppressions and biases that allow people to feel more trustful with it, um, for it. Um, And I found that incorporating more cultural aspects into psychotherapy, Um, what many people might consider non-traditional methods of psychotherapy, um, just moving beyond this traditional talk therapy approach increases access. It makes, it increases comfort for a lot of people. Um, When Mm -hmm. I'm looking specifically at people of color, a lot of the feedback that I was getting in my own research was that, you know, therapy isn't for me, Um, whether that Mm -hmm. is based off of just how systems have set up how you access therapy or like the way that therapy is actually facilitated. And so trying to gather information on, you know, what would therapy look like if it were for you? And then trying Mm -hmm. to do more of that in order to increase not just access, but interest and trust um, so that it's more utilized. Yeah. I think the piece about trust is so important too. It's such a such a barrier for so many people for sure we also were talking about in one episode about the um, dsm and about diagnostic pieces of it and how even the way that we diagnose is so layered upon really one group 
You know, it does mm-hmm. not really take into account all of the cultural aspects of different groups of people, different cultures and races and ethnicities and all of the different things. And so I think it's, I think it's a really important, it's a really important point. I, that research sounds really interesting. I guess I'm curious about both of your experiences when you were working in the school, just thinking about what you were saying, Nikki, about how it, how it can look differently. I wondered if either or both of you experienced pushback around that, you know, when you're working in a system and you really want to try to do things differently to, to cater to really like the client, right? The person who you're supposed to be serving, but then the system around you doesn't support that. And it kind of like locks you in this position um, where you really can't do the work you want to do if you can't get over that first hump and engage them. Um, So yeah, I guess I was curious what you've both kind of come up against and how you navigated it. Isabel, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, Working in a school is definitely a system. And when there are certain parts that are resistant to systemic change, um, you will feel that resistance because you are a part, just one piece in that system. And yeah, I can work one-on-one with a lot of our students of color, but they come outside of my therapy office and they're engaging in the classroom. They're experiencing racialized incidents on campuses. They're they're really experiencing that kind of racial um, oppression that's happening within the classroom setting. And they come back into my office and all this harm is being done. It's hard to create this corrective experience that I thrive, that I strive to do with them when they're just continually being harmed on a daily day basis. But it's difficult, but it can be done. And that's part of my dissertation is focusing on culturally responsive school-based mental health and how as a mental health therapist in the school system, how can you be culturally responsive? How can you be more than just a therapist for our populations of color within the school setting? But it's definitely difficult, but it can be done. And it's an important work. Um, It's really important in decreasing some of the racialized outcomes that are happening with our black and brown populations. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, saying Stacia. And I think a big part of trying to make change in these systems that can sometimes create and sustain barriers is to try and get into the spaces of advocacy and policy. Because in order to make systemic change, you have to go all the way to the top. And that isn't usually done just in conversations. That also isn't usually done by, you know, in a school setting, going to the PTA meetings or the community forums and speaking up. Like there's so much more that needs to be done to create systemic change. And that's one of the values that I see in DEI initiatives is that it's really putting forward the conversations around how can we make systemic change? How can we increase diversity? Because diversity at the top of these systems is what is needed in order to funnel it down and create changes at the bottom. Um, so a big piece of what I've learned, even in my doctorate program, and just in my own like social justice work personally, is that advocacy and policy is one of the main focuses in trying to create some systemic change. And a big piece of that is just increasing diversity at the, at the table that the, the decisions are made. I think one thing I would add to that, um, too, is understanding that the systems within schools, when they're 
when they're listening to this advocacy work, when you're going in and trying to do this culturally responsive work, a lot of times the stakeholders within the system take it personal. They feel like, oh, well, you're saying I'm, you know, racist, or you're saying that I'm personally targeting students when really we know there's unconscious biases that happen within the school setting. And us as therapists, us as culturally responsive therapists can go in and kind of uncover those biases. So your work is inside the therapy room as well as outside in the community, in the school larger community. Yeah, I think uh, what you just brought up, Stacia, yeah, I think that was definitely something I came up against in all the places that I worked is then it becomes about the individual. It becomes about the person trying to prove that they're not racist and then attacking you for for labeling them that and making them uncomfortable rather than keeping it about what the kids need. And then there's all this hold up for what's actually really the problem. And it just creates a lot of distraction. I've seen that happening a few times. <laughs> I have a question. I guess I want to ask, I guess it's kind of hard to ask because I think obviously the work as particularly that you two are talking about and the work that we all want to do is create access, especially for marginalized communities. And so we want to make sure that anyone who needs the services gets them. I guess I'm wondering what you both think about the other side of that, like um, the assumption that people from marginalized communities need it because they're from a marginalized community. And so I think that there's always collective trauma and there's always lots of experiences that people can benefit from it. But I think one thing that came up in the school I worked in was this idea that everyone needed counseling. And while everyone could benefit from it, if someone doesn't want it or doesn't have something that they actively wanna work on, then forcing them into the counselor's office in school feels like it could be harmful and then also takes away from the kids who do actively need it and want it. I was curious what you both thought about that. I can speak to some of that because in addition to the research that I was doing to collect information on why there are these barriers, um, another focus was in like, how do we decrease the stigma piece, the stigmatization? Because I think that plays a huge role in people being open to having therapy or even seeing any type of um, mental health or wellness professional. And so increasing education around what therapy is, what therapy looks like, what therapy can be useful for, that therapy isn't just for those folks who have experienced the biggest, you know, capital T traumas, that it's for the person who is having difficulties with their confidence, for the person who wants to excel in their profession, for the person who wants to increase their satisfaction in relationships. Um, but so often, I think these marginalized communities have a perception of what therapy is and when it's to be used for, and that is an additional barrier. So really trying to increase mental health education in, in marginalized groups can help increase access in, in ways that will address that. Mm -hmm. And I think speaking to the other side of the spectrum, what you were saying, Isabel, and I think this is where psychoeducation and, and education needs to happen on those that are referring these populations to therapy, this assumption, what is traumatizing, what is considered trauma, and what's not, it, to me, is layered with so much biases. You see a student from a marginalized population and assume that they've gone through certain traumas 
um, when that's really not the case. They, what you consider traumatizing may not always be what that individual person is considered a trauma. And so really the stakeholders checking their own biases, like, okay, every black and brown person needs therapy. Everyone can use therapy, can benefit from therapy, but forcing someone into therapy because of what you think is considered trauma is an unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. It is. And it's creating a lot of harm for those populations because that's not what, that's not what trauma looks like. And even populations within black and brown populations there's different perspectives on what that collective experience um, looks like or has felt like for them. So I can, it's definitely harmful to assume that these populations need therapy because of whatever reason the stakeholder might, might think of. Yeah. And I think there's also something that needs to be acknowledged is that marginalized groups, individuals, communities, however we want to frame it, are constantly on a daily basis being impacted by these different systems, by imbalances of power and privilege in different systems. You know, generational trauma, a, a lot of just the daily experience for especially people of color, people with disabilities, queer people, the impacts of that are felt even on a cellular level. And I think ignoring that is also ignoring that does a disservice to individuals who could really benefit from therapy. Um, I would say in that aspect, looking at just the systemic impacts of existing at the intersection of these marginalized identities creates a need for healing. It creates a need for some type of therapeutic process. And maybe that's what folks are trying to kind of um, lean into on the other end of that spectrum. But I think that if we pay attention to that, then we can really affirm that marginalized people actually really do need therapy. It can be beneficial in so many ways just because existence alone is so layered um, and, and impactful. Yeah. I think the other thing that we've talked about before is that therapy can look like anything. And that was coming up for me listening to both of you. I like one of my personal biases I know early or, earlier on was if I thought a, a student or a family member would benefit from therapy. And then the response would be, well, I have that. I'm talking to like my pastor or someone from my family or like this person. And earlier on, I was like, no, that's not therapy. That's not going to help. And yeah, like, first of all, who am I to decide what, I don't even know what they're talking about, but also like if that's where they feel safe and that's where they mm -hmm. feel understood, um, then it should, then, and they're going, they're motivated to go and they feel like it's helping them. I think that also needs to be honored. Exactly. I think the power of transformational relational work can be done, is done in a lot of spaces, especially in black and brown communities that are outside of Western therapy, um, but incorporating those practices into our therapy is creating access, it's decreasing barriers, learning from that culture and what, how, what they consider as transformational um, relational work is creating access. So if you were to give advice to somebody who is part of one of the marginalized groups that you know you're speaking of and who is curious about therapy but feels distrustful maybe 
um, worried about stigma, all of the things that we've been talking about. Because therapy is a difficult process to start to begin with under even very privileged circumstances. What is something that you could say to maybe guide that person through that scenario? I think that's an interesting notion. Um, what advice I would give to populations. And you're always kind of in this balance in your mind, like who does that responsibility lie on is creating that environment of safety. But um, one thing I tell the clients that I work with is engaging in the process, but trusting how you feel in that process as much as possible. If that person does not feel safe, if they don't understand your unique experiences, feel free to, to move to other therapeutic spaces where you are centered and your voice is centered in that space. So really focusing on empowerment. So empowering them to try these spaces. And if it doesn't feel right, and if it doesn't feel safe, then moving, feeling free, this freedom to move to another space where they are centered. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's similar to what Nikki said, and she hit the nail on the head because I was going to say that is increasing the quality of mental health that these populations do have access to. Mm -hmm. um, training school-based clinicians to be come from a culturally responsive lens just because schools are a hub. I mean, they're a hub of healthcare for healthcare or for now for mental health. Um, increasing access to these students because they're they're at school already. So you are that provider that's it's readily accessible, but training these clinicians to be culturally responsive so that the quality of care that they do provide for these students are one that is, feels safe for our, our marginalized populations. Making that a standard practice, that is my hope, that that is a standard practice in every single school so that not only certain populations feel safe and comfortable in those spaces, but all the populations that are on campus. Um, you're reaching pockets of students um, that don't normally access mental health just because they feel like this person's not going to understand my unique needs. Like you providing that service and demonstrating that you're a safe space automatically increases access. And so my hope is for culturally responsive mental health care to be a standard in schools, um, no matter what, where you are. Yeah, what um, what do I hope for here? Well, <laughs> um, I I hope that you know, as a collective in our different professions and fields, we can continue to move the needle towards more accessibility and more acceptability. You know, decreasing that stigmatization. Mm -hmm. I think what part I want to just continuously play in that is having conversations like this one. You know, you two are cultivating the space to talk about therapy. Um, which is a, um, it helps to normalize it. And so just any act or project, whether it's an advocacy or something personal that helps to normalize the process of acknowledging that we all have mental health stuff and being open and willing to seek support around it, I think can be really helpful. But I'm also kind of curious about how increasing these conversations and further normalizing it can impact misinformation about it. Because I've already started to see trends on like, you know, TikTok or Clubhouse, Instagram, where like everyone's diagnosing themselves with something. <laughs> um, and I have so many clients who will show up and say, yeah, I saw this on TikTok. So now I'm wondering if, you know, this is me or not. And so 
I think that the conversations on social media have come from us further normalizing it and having more conversations. But I'm really interested to see like where this can go. And obviously without censorship, how we can make sure that it doesn't just turn into a whole world of mumble jumble misinformation that then causes other disparities and other issues for folks really trying to get therapeutic support. So if you refer to episode 12, <laughs> we could all wonder <laughs> about social media. We do. We talk about the vastness of the internet and how on one hand, reducing stigma and normalizing is what we all want. But I think you put it so well, probably better than we put it, um, is that there is opportunity for misinformation. You do have to kind of walk that line between um, reducing the stigma, but also are we are we having the conversations that are actually going to be helpful and not just dancing mm -hmm. on TikTok about what anxiety is? Yeah, I think what you were saying, Nikki, so what we talked about was... Um, like the importance of a space to process. So the idea that your clients are coming and telling you, like I saw this on TikTok, now I think I have this, opens up the conversation for you to then explore with them and help them process it. I think the mm -hmm. scary part is when people, and I think what we talked about was during the pandemic when this is all over social media and people are just sitting home with no outlet and no processing space thinking, oh, now I have this, now I have that, now I'm that. Um, but like ideally is the ideal is that people then have a space to go back to and say like I saw this even if it's your friends right or mm -hmm. your family or whatever it is but just somewhere to process it instead of sitting with it sitting with the misinformation yourself yeah is there anything else either of you want to add I just really appreciate you all opening up this space to have this conversation and I feel like it's like Nikki said this this kind of discussion and discourse is what creates pivots and shifts in the work. And so it can look very different and really shifting and moving away from this idea, which irritates me, of cultural competence to cultural responsiveness. So we're responding to the individual needs of our clients. And it stems from having these conversations and, and really exploring the work that we're doing and how we're doing it with clients. And so I appreciate the, this conversation and you all opening the space for that. Well, we appreciate you being on and coming on and talking to us and sharing all of your incredibly important thoughts. We will include in the show notes, if you'd like to get in touch with either Dr. Taylor or Dr. Veal. And um, thank you so much for being here. You're all awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Could All Use Some Therapy. We hope that you found some of the content relevant and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts or ideas you want to share with us, feel free to email us at wecouldallusometherapy at gmail.com. The longest email address in existence. We would love to hear from you and uh, use your questions and thoughts for future episodes. Hope to see you again soon. Bye.